Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. We have a excellent interview today with somebody that I've been meaning to talk to and we've been coordinating this for a few weeks, a month, something like that. Um, so this is somebody who's really awesome, Dr. Jessie Gold, a little bit about her. Uh, Dr. Jesse Gold is an assistant professor and director of wellness, engagement, and outreach in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. She's a nationally recognized expert on healthcare worker mental health and burnout, particularly during the pandemic, college mental health using social media and media for mental health advocacy, and the overlap between pop culture and mental health, including celebrity self-disclosure. She works clinically as an outpatient psychiatrist and sees faculty, staff, hospital employees, and their dependents, particularly their college-age kids. Dr. Gold is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania with a BA and MS in Anthropology, the Yale School of Medicine, and completed her residency training in adult psychiatry at Stanford University, where she served as chief resident. Dr. Gold also writes for Popular Press and has been featured in, amongst others, the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Time, and Self. She writes a column for InStyle called I'm a Psychiatrist and, and is actively working on a book about healthcare worker mental health and burnout during the pandemic for Simon Element. She's also a member of the Expert Advisory Council for the Viacom CBS Mental Health Storytelling Initiative and co-author of the Mental Health Media Guide. Whew, long bio. A um, lot of accomplishments. Dr. Gold is awesome. And, you know, is sharing a little bit of behind the scenes stuff. I'm very happy to say that she swears just as much as all the psychiatrists I know. So while she appears very bubbly and happy and safe, she's his pirate just as much as I am. So enjoy this conversation. We had a great conversation about all kinds of different things. Um, and it's really cool. And I hope to be able to keep talking and have her back for some more stuff. All right, so welcome Dr. Jesse Gold to the program where I'm super excited to have you on here. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while about all kinds of different things. Um, I think you're like super interesting person and it's a very different kind of vibe, a different kind of discussion I wanted to have probably compared to other stuff, but tell us, you know, starting off a little bit about you and what you do. Sure. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a psychiatrist like you, you know, that fun field that we do. Um, I kind of, I guess if it is a specialty, specifically see um, people who are on the insurance where I work at WashU, which is like faculty, staff, and their college age kids. Um, I transitioned to seeing more of like healthcare worker type patients over COVID. I also have a role called Director of Wellness Engagement and Outreach, which basically just means that over COVID, I was someone who really understood mental health of healthcare workers and really early on was like, we need to think about this. And, and it became something I was spending a lot of time doing. So I asked for it to be a leadership role and like my, my department was kind enough to do that. Um, so we renamed it <laughs> Director of Wellness Engagement and Outreach. Um, and then in my spare time, I write a lot for the popular press and sort of um, primarily these days, it's in style and self. Um, but I've written kind of all over the place too, and that's been really fun. And I also hang out on social media like you, um, more on the Twitterverse than anything else, but am trying to branch out. Yeah, that's definitely like one of the things that I wanted to talk about, all these kind of things. Um, and a lot of, you know, I know right now we just kicked off like ERAS season. I know you talked about working with college students and med students. And I know one of the things that 
recently I saw on Twitter that made us, I know we were just talking right before this, that we got some similarities. We're like nearly birthday twins, but I saw there were also like sub 200 step one peoples. Right. And um, we, you know, I think it's one of those things that's really important when we're talking about ERAS stuff and, and we hear and see all these stories of med students who are scared that they're not going to match us, stuff like, I think we're both, pretty successful and doing okay and, and, and enjoying our careers. And we're sub 200, so we're, we, we made it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we made our lives what we want them to be. I think very much like I remember, I've never been a good test taker. I hate tests. I've never liked tests. Like I get super test anxiety, like want to throw up and be really sick to my stomach in the morning, threw up in the ACTs. It's been a problem like my whole life. Um, and so going to have to study for six weeks and then take a test as if I studied that well the whole time in med school was really hard for me. And I was never a basic science person either. And so having like test problems, not being a basic science person, and then having to take an entire like basic science test was not meant for me. I postponed it initially because I was taking practice tests and failing. Um, and I was just getting over like chronic migraines, which I think were stress induced, but I didn't understand that at the time. And my dean was like, you can't postpone it. Like people don't postpone it. Like that's not a thing. And I was like, listen, when I tell you I'm going to fail, I don't mean I'm going to get a 250. I mean, I'm going to fail. And that like was really hard to wrap her head around because like people who are I went to Yale. People who are like in those places, when they say fail, their definition of failure is not actually failing. And I was like, I'm really mean. I'm going to fail. And so she finally kind of got it and I postponed it. But even with the postponement, like 190, I can't even remember because I remember opening the envelope and going, that's a number you can get. Oh, I still passed and just kind of was like, okay, but it felt so much like there was probably one question I got right on the right side of things, you know? And I think obviously that if I wanted to be a neurosurgeon or something, we could have a little bit of a different story about what the test score might have meant. But I think being interested in a field that is interested in people for who they are and not the numbers, I think it was fine for me. I, I mean, I think I'm still figuring out what I want to do every day, but, um, you know, I have a different skill set than that. And I, I think you do too, which is like, you can't, it doesn't, I mean, who cares like biochemistry module things and like what really matters for me is that like patients feel comfortable and they ask me questions and like, I can somewhat give them the answer. And if I don't, I look it up and I try, you know? Yeah, which I think is super valuable, especially in our field. And it's one of the things that, you know, one of the analogies or stories you always tell is that like in mental health, like in healthcare as a whole, not just like our field, but, you know, it doesn't matter if you went to Harvard or Yale or Stanford or Oxford or whatever, and you have all these publications and research and you've cured X, Y, and Z. Like if you can't connect with your patients, if you can't have a rapport with them if you can't have that connection and they can't open up to you and be vulnerable with you and seek care from you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything at all. Yeah. I mean, I also think that there's so much more than those schools. Like, obviously, I have a very, like, pedigreed resume, but I think in a lot of ways, 
I don't know that I needed that and I would have been happy in other ways, but it was like something that I viewed as like success from the ethos and like, if you can get in there, you must go. Right. And I think I did. So I did. And I don't know that I would have been happier somewhere else in all the phases of my training in life. But I think, you know, I, that's what I did. I understand those places and where they come from, but I always felt like different and so I continue to feel different in my academic sphere, but it's okay. I think. Yeah. Scores, scores don't mean anything. There's like, I don't think, you know, for the, for the students applying out there, the residents and stuff, I've, you know, been MD after my name for 10 years now, I guess, um, and 10 plus years. And like, now I don't think I've ever had a patient come up to me and ask me like, what did you do on your scores? How many times did you test? Like nobody cares, right? In the real world, nobody cares. No, and I see a lot of like what people would consider fancy patients, you know, like I see other doctors and they don't ask me. So if those people don't ask, like nobody's going to ask, right? And I think that's just not important. You know, I think one of the things that I've loved about this generation of like med students and stuff is like they post when they don't match and it is so beautiful in like a way that I don't think they even understand. Like the vulnerability to be able to say like to people they don't know and and hundreds of thousands, whoever is reading it, maybe no one, maybe a lot of people that they didn't match, which in medicine might feel like one of the greatest failures. And they're like, this is what happened. What do I do next? And I need support. And they reach out and it's, it's honestly like going to change the culture so much more than they realize. And like, whenever that happens, I just like watch being like, I don't think I could have done that. And people say I'm vulnerable all the time because I do talk a lot about myself, but like, I don't know if that phase of my life that I would have been able to be like, proud's the wrong word, but like able to even say out loud, like, this is what happened to me. I think I would have like turned inward and like really given myself negative self-talk and negative everything for a really long time. And then maybe now, like so many years later, would able would be able to say on social, like, you know, I didn't match. And I think that's how I've been with testing. Like when I barely passed, like my really good friends knew, like, because it was so hard for me, but it wasn't like I was running around school being like, <laughs> I almost failed like step one. I would have never posted that on social as a med school, like med student, because I would have called too much attention to it. And I just wanted to sort of like package myself around it and hide it as best I could. Like, what can I do to make myself not just be the test? Like, let me hide the test. It's in there, but it's not the thing, right? And I, I think if I would have posted it, I would have felt like it was more of a thing or like a thing that was associated with me. And so it's just been like, I don't know how you felt looking at that stuff, but it, I, I'm, I'm like, I, I'm, I were lucky that that generation wants to be in medicine, frankly. <laughs> No, I, absolutely. I think it's, I see that again, I, I have echo those same sentiments. I see so much of these things and, you know, it, it reminds me when you were talking about like, oh, you know, part of my own background, like I, you know, people may know this, like I initially started off in dental school and I failed out of dental school. You know, I was, I, you know, looking back, it was, you know, untreated ADHD and there was like adjustment disorder to being out of the house for the first time, all these things. We can pathologize it all you want, but like, I failed out, right? That was what the reality was. And I was like, you know, sitting at home for a year being like, what do I do with my life? And it's something that there was like so much shame and, and kind of guilt with it. And I, you know, didn't talk about it with people for a long time. And then, you know, luckily I was able to kind of like get back and go into a Caribbean middle school. And again, amongst those people, those places are notorious for just failing people out. Again, 
you know, 15, I want to say 15 of the 150 that started with me, September 2008, graduated and matched on time. Uh, that standard, you know, that's a 90% not on time kind of success rate, which is astounding. But I got there and then, you know, got into residency and I, there was like a group therapy, kind of like a, in our residency, kind of like a group therapy, kind of like, let's kind of get you guys into it as a whole. And I remember this cathartic kind of moment of like talking about this story of like, oh my God, this is what I failed and et cetera. And like, I remember just like profusely sweating and telling this story in front of like my residency classmates. But then after that, it was like, oh, I can talk about it and I can say that this can happen and accept it and, and go on with it. So kind of what you're saying, like we see these people now who saying these things and getting help. I, again, friends, you know, person who introduced me to my wife, she didn't match four years in a row. Um, but she finally got through there. But it's, again, being able to share that story is, is huge. Yeah, we had process groups in residency, too. I mean, it's very classic psych, but there's some weird aspects of it, too, right? Like, you're, they're your colleagues, and you work with them. And, like, we had mandatory for the first two years, and then it was um, – you could decide to go or not. And all, almost every single person except for one person in our class kept going. And, you know, as we went on, we had a different leader every year because they wanted us to learn different techniques or whatever. But like they got deep by fourth year. Like I knew stuff about colleagues that you don't know about colleagues. Right. And like when you're having to rely on those people for coverage or like somebody's not doing their work and you need to say something, it's weird because you also are like, here's what's going on in their life to like such a heavy extent. And it's, it's awesome and powerful. And like, I feel close to those people, even if I don't talk to those people. Um, and I could always like call them if I needed something and they would respond, I think because of that. But it's just such a weird, like, the fact that we're like, yeah, sure, like, put a bunch of people who've always competed because that's what they've wanted, to, like, been told to do into a little room and, like, have them talk with each other about their deepest, darkest secrets. And, like, for first year, our deepest, darkest secret was, like, this sucks, right? Like, there's so much about work and so much about, like, our stress and sleep and balance and that sort of stuff. And it got, like, deeper over time because of comfort. But I just, I don't know, was it weird for you? It was, like I said, definitely weird for me. Um, there's that aspect of like, you you learn stuff that you're kind of like, I don't know if I wanted to hear this. I don't know if I, you know, because, and then even, you know, it's, it's one of the cardinal rules of like, why we're not supposed to do therapy with people that we like hang out with. Uh, just because again, there'd be times where I, I think I made like a TikTok about this randomly one time, like I was hanging out with like a buddy of mine. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, telling me about this time that he was abused in childhood. And I was like, well, I'm just trying to watch the game with you. And and now we're getting distracted. I mean, I was like, you know, we're trying to be there for our friends, but like those boundaries are really important too. Yeah, I don't know. It's so funny. I've had this because I work in the population I see a lot of times. So that's been interesting in terms of like, how do you acknowledge that? And, you know, for the most part, I don't unless it is weird, like in a, they bring it up or something, but like, I've had multiple situations where like I've had a party, like a small gathering and my friend was the person psychiatrist or a therapist. And like, how was I, like, do I need to pre-screen the guest list for these things? Like it was super weird. Like both of them, like on one of them, I actually knew. So I like screened it a bit and was like, are you okay? Are you okay? And they couldn't really like say, but they were like, la la la, they may or may not be my patient, but you know. And then the other one, like it was a tiny, like four people out to dinner. 
And I had no idea. Like, I didn't ask the, this person who their therapist was. And then, like, we're out. And, like, immediately it was, like, when the person came and it was their therapist, they were so – it was, like, visibly dis- – like, it, it was, like, you could feel that they couldn't be there. And my my friend who was the therapist was, like, you know, trying to pretend like she didn't know her. And, like, it was, like, this whole thing. And, and I, it's so weird because, like – I don't think about that having to be something that like I need to pre-screen and I wish it wasn't like people aren't like, who's your primary care doctor? Are you inviting your primary care doctor to your house? Oh no. Or like your OBGYN. That person literally saw like a baby come out of your insides. And then like probably you did other things that they saw and like, that's gross. And they that's okay with people. Like they, you know, that's not personal, but like the fact that I know that you're stressed about work is like, it blows my mind. Yeah. It's, it's a very different dynamic and it's, it really, you know, you can get really Freudian and all that other stuff about like how intimate that, that mental psychological intimacy is versus a physical intimacy. And it's really like, again, like I would always say like, you know, these people on a different level, like when you're working, doing like real therapy with people, like, you know, these people on a different level than anybody else knows them. Like there'd be times I'd be like, you know, you'd say it, like, I know these people better than their, their spouses know them, which is a weird kind of thing to say sometimes to people, but it's reality is the truth. Yeah, it, it is definitely weird. And I, and I, it's just one of those things I've been thinking about. It's like, do I pre-screen party lists? I don't want a pre-screen party list, but I don't want any of my friends to be uncomfortable. And like, that's weird. Let's pivot a little bit. I wanted to talk, one of the main things I, that I really appealed or, or drew me to you as a whole was, and it's something that I'm trying to get into uh, a little bit here and there, but the aspect of working with the media. I know you've, you referenced it a bunch. You talked about the writings, um, doing the articles, and then kind of like being on TV, doing that stuff. How did you get started with this? Yeah. So I think like for me, writing is sort of the crux of things, like where I started. Like I was an anthro major. I've always been good at that sort of thinking. I don't think math and science go together. I think like science and writing should go together, but like there's some people where that's their brain and that's what my brain is more like. And so I'm never good at math. And I started writing in med school as like a break. Like, oh man, like I can't do this stuff all the time. Like it's sort of journaling, but maybe not. And then started to pay attention to like medical blogs and like what was going on. And that was like right at the beginning of Kevin MD. So I wrote for Kevin MD a little bit and was like, this is like a place that I can put the stuff that I write. Okay. And then in med school, I had this like situation happen where, um, I mean, I had to basically give cardiac massage to a person who was already dead, meaning like put my hand inside their body and pump their heart. And I thought they were alive, but it was some weird trick by the attending to like teach me what to do in an emergency without the emergency actually happening. But it was like on a human and I had no idea until I figured it out. Anyway, it was like a lot for me for obvious reasons. And I like went home and wrote really angrily, like all my feelings and then sent it to my med school mentor, who's still one of my closest friends today, honestly. And she was like, shitty that happened to you. Also horrible. And also take some anger out of this, but do something with this. Like you could really help people. And I hadn't really conceptualized my writing as like a method of 
education and helping or using like my own story at all to educate and help other people until that point. Like I was just kind of like, here's some stuff I'm thinking about. Here's what it's like to be a med student. Like here's what's weird about being a med student. When that happened and I wrote that, you know, it was in Annals of Internal Medicine and it like got sent around school and people really like resonated with it or, you know, it, the teachers talked about it. And I was like, oh, like this is how you change stuff. Like you can you can tell your story, but teach around it or you can tell someone else's story and teach around it. And, like there's so much power in that. And I saw that in anthro, but like it never really was coming to fruition in medicine. And so as a result was like, not only am I getting positive feedback on this for like the only thing I'm getting positive feedback on in medicine, but like it can really help. And so I started writing more and, you know, in residency that meant like psych time, psych news, some of these kind of like trade publications. And um, then I kind of just got the nerve to basically use my Twitter account to get myself writing other places, which was like, you know, I had like 3,000 followers or something. So if someone looks now and they're like, Jesse, you have 4,000 followers or 40,000 followers, of course, somebody wrote you back. Like I had no followers and I probably looked shady because it was mostly like vague attempts at self-promotion because someone told me that's what I needed to do on my professional Twitter. And so like, I'm sure it didn't look normal. And so I wrote like the editor of Glamour and the editor of Self and in a couple other places, but those are the ones who actually responded to me, basically just being like, I don't know how this works. Like I'm a resident in psychiatry. I write like, do you need an expert who can write and understands the field or has access to the people in the field like what what are you looking for kind of and both of them are like that's awesome like here's the real person who's in charge of that i'm the editor-in-chief like i literally had no idea i wrote like the person on the masthead right they were like thank you for writing which i'm blown away they did and i still thank them like honestly to this day and like they connected me to the right people and i didn't get stuff in right away or anything but i started pitching and understanding that stuff and kind of have navigated writing that way. And like once you start writing and people like you, you can usually keep writing or self started sending me like their own ideas, which they still do. Like sometimes they're ridiculous because, you know, some of that stuff is like mental health clickbait in some capacity, but should just be written by someone who's not a provider. And like sometimes it's fine if it's it's written by me, um, you know, like 10 things <laughs> to think about before you go to a therapist, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and so writing for me was like a platform to everything else. And I think writing plus Twitter where like tons of journalists are has been a platform to everything else. So like over COVID in particular is when I started doing a lot more of like TV, print, like whatever else is kind of journalistic ways of interviewing me. I don't do a ton of TV. I probably am much more in like the print side of stuff, but I've done TV. Um, and that has come from either something I wrote and resonating with people, someone finding me on Twitter. Um, freelance writers are awesome because they write for like everywhere. And if you're nice to them, they'll come back to you for like every possible mental health thing. And sometimes like I don't, I never talk outside of my sphere of um, knowledge. And I really try to elevate other people because like, you know, they're not going to go looking for like uh, intersectional identity psychiatrist or another female psychiatrist. So I really try to have like lists of people in my mind or, or people I can go to to ask for lists of people um, because I don't like speaking out of turn because people train in this stuff and specialize in this stuff. And I want to talk about 
the stuff I know and not the stuff other people know. And so I try really hard to stay in there. Um, but that's kind of how I've navigated it. It has just been like slow and steady from the writing to the other stuff and like really being as nice as possible to these people that have written me or, or, or worked with me in any capacity. And like now people like will just like contact me on my website, like through my website and stuff. That was a nice. long cool. answer. It's not something you can just be like, hey, here's an article I wrote and here's the thing. It's it's you have to build up through it. You have to get to that point of putting stuff out there and putting content out there, putting writings out there and somebody has to latch onto it. And one of the things that was like really important in a way, I think we've had this shift in writing in education as well, a lot from from people, I want to say the lived experience, right? And that's what people want to hear, what they want to see, um, where they want to learn from. And we hear this all the time, right? And especially in our field, and again, the healthcare field, well, you don't know, you don't, you didn't have to go through this or, you know, I do a lot of work in substance work. And, you know, I always get there like, well, do you have stuff? You don't know what it was like to be on the streets or you don't. And I was like, I don't, right. I, I don't have that experience. That wasn't what my background was, but I, I want to be able to do everything I can. So I think when you, one of the articles I really brought you up to prominence per se is when you describe your own struggles with like depression and, and saying like, Hey, I'm a psychiatrist who takes medication and here it is. And I think that's people resonated with that, right? People get that like, Oh, I do too. And that's, what's really important. Again, that, that lived experience as a whole and versus again, that outsider saying, well, do this, even though I don't know it. Yeah, I think it's complicated. I think there's room for both. And I remember when I first started writing, like some of the magazines were like, we prefer people with lived experience over experts. And I was like, but I went to school for this. Like I'm confused. And I think over time have been able to better understand like how to keep those things like, you know, benefiting each other and in the same conversation and not mutually exclusive. And when I started talking more about myself um, on meds or being burnt out or whatever, um, you know, part of what was important to me was to talk about the struggle with having those conversations and how they're not easy. I think I could have written a piece that's like, I'm a psychiatrist and I take meds and it's awesome, right? And like meds saved me or whatever, right? They didn't, I mean, they just made my life a little bit better. <laughs> like I, you know, I could have written a piece like that, but it was important to me to be like, I'm a psychiatrist and turns out like I haven't talked about being on meds because I stigmatize myself, right? And like, I think it was important like it's important to me to transparently have those conversations because like, yeah, we're human. Yeah, we internalize the same stigma, even if we're out there like telling people it's okay. And at the same time, like we need to break down those barriers too. And like the way we do that is to say like, this wasn't easy for me. This was hard. And like, here's why, you know? What is the importance you feel, the impact of, of kind of the writing and being out there and in Twitter and all that stuff. Why is it important? Because I think there's been also that shift to, again, within our field of saying, being open and being out there versus being private and this kind of secretive, almost like, you know, the olden days of the boys club of, of psychiatry, of mental health. And now it's kind of shifted and we're blowing the door open and saying, here we are, this is what we do. We're exposing some of our secrets per se. Why is that important? nowadays? 
I think people want to see humans. I don't think people want to see blank slates. I don't think it helps them. I mean, I think there are some ways that that can help, you know, if and I think it's maybe patient dependent, how much to share in a session or how much to self-disclose or how much they know. But like, I'm public enough that if they wanted to read my stuff, they could have. Not all of my patients have and not all my patients will. Um, but I think it's important that like, we can't ask people to do stuff that we don't do for ourselves. I think that we also need to acknowledge that some of the stuff we do is hard. Like I'm not good at coping. I'm not good at taking care of myself. And and when I tell you to do stuff, like I've tried a lot of it and maybe I hate most of it, but it's also important that like, you know, that I'm not perfect, but also that I can help you because I understand. Um, and I don't think, and I think like, especially you see younger people too, like younger people really like, real much more than they like i am here and you are here and i shall tell you what to do um and i've never really liked that you know i don't use big words like you know i'm talking about meds i'm like it makes this thing in your brain have more <laughs> like i'm not like here's the neurotransmitter that does la 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 like i might not even really know all the fancy words right but i very much used to like using layman's language in everything that i do um for lack of a better word um and I think people really like it better. I mean, if you don't like it, you won't see me. One of the things also that you've been doing is media consultancy, right? So you were doing some work with Selena Gomez and their projects and stuff. And there's, I think a lot of this kind of came out of, there was this blowback to the 13 reasons why, right? And there's a lot of the controversy that came around that again, there was good things about it, but then negative things about it. Talk about that, because I, I think that's really important because we're seeing, again, this discussion of mental health and portrayals of mental health in the media so much more. And we know in our field, like, and that it's so important to portray it the right way. Yeah, there's mental health all over the media, and there always has been. And a lot of times it's bad. Um, you know, there's really good evidence from the Annenberg Inclusionist Initiative that looks at, like, what does mental health look like in the media? They did it with the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. And basically, you see that there's not a lot of mental health in the media. That's good. When they portray mental health, it's not diverse. And then on top of it, there's a lot of, like, humor around it, disparagement around it, and like words like crazy or making fun of the person around it. And then on top of it, violence. So lots and lots of violence. So we're putting out these images that are like, we're not really going to talk about mental illness, but when we do, it's going to be all white people and those white people are going to shoot everyone. So that doesn't help at all. And as a result, you know, that's where people get information about mental health. That's where I got information about mental health. I read magazines that had like Britney Spears on the cover talking about like what she was doing. And like as a kid, I thought that's bizarre as opposed to that person needs help, right? Like that's a different way of looking at it. And so you know, it's really important to me as someone who's like a vast consumer of popular culture and also sees like, you know, college kids and understands how much they consume popular culture to to change the narrative and to do better. Um, that's required, like, you know, again, like networking to the best of my ability is to get in these rooms. Like I've never really like consulted on a show per se, um, but I helped 
uh, Viacom CBS slash MTV de develop this mental health media guide, um, which was a lot of fun and like really is like, okay, I want to write a P I want to write something that has depression in it. Like, what do I need to know about depression? What stories are missing in the media about depression? What do we usually get wrong? And we did that with like multiple disorders, multiple themes, like, you know, age is a theme in certain ways and um, trauma as a theme in certain ways. And I think it's really helpful for creatives um, and ideally they would use it early on. And I think it's a living, breathing document. So when things change, they change. But it was really fun for me to be like, what have I been watching and what could be better and where has it needed help and what facts would help me quickly understand this in some way, obviously not in the same way as having an expert consultant helping me, but at least start with the writing. And um, that was a great experience and I think is still like an ongoing thing. And really just to think about how to make shows about mental health and, you know, that can dispel stigma instead of contribute to it. And that are actually correct in some factual capacity. I mean, I think there are things that people take liberty on and nothing is going to be perfect. But, you know, if you're going to talk about something like suicide, it has like data that you have to talk about it a certain way and you have to be good about it. And most people aren't journalists are notoriously not. Headlines are horrible about this stuff. And, you know, just doing a better job, I think, is super important. And Selena on that side is, um, you know, she has a makeup company called um, Rare Beauty. And in, in parallel with developing Rare Beauty, developed a philanthropy called Rare Impact. Um, she gives a significant, like a, a percentage of Rare Beauty to Rare Impact. And then they also have like, are trying to raise money for mental health um, subjects. And I spent some time just like, you know, playing around on their Instagram, ans answering questions. They call me Dr. Jesse over there. Um, and that's been really fun. But at the same time, like, they also have a really amazing expert council of like, I mean, like the head of MGH, like people who've worked in these fields for so, so long, like really expert people, like in the way where you want celebrities to think this way, like it's not a made up brand. It's got really great people working in it and their experts are, I'm, I have imposter syndrome on that board, um, you know, on that council because they're like, I'm young. I haven't done what they have done. I mostly do this fun stuff because I really like to change the narrative. But like these people are like amazing and it, and it makes me hopeful for like what somebody with that power can do. Like she's used to be, if not is the most followed person on Instagram, though she doesn't even really like love social media herself. And that kind of power for young people to be like, I have bipolar disorder. This is my experience. She has a, a Netflix or a Apple documentary coming out soon on that too, that they followed her for six years. But at the same time, like I actually want to help in a real tangible way. And I'm going to ask the right people. I'm not just going to like do whatever, wherever in communities. Like I'm going to ask the people who've been working in communities. Like I want to raise awareness about Hispanic mental health. Like where do I go for like Latinx youth? Like where do I, you know, and she's like asking the right people. And it's awesome because to me, we shouldn't be scared of what celebrities can do and what they're talking about. We should inform it. And I think we, we as a field, as medicine in general too, but like psychiatry too, like we don't want to get involved with that. Like if they mess up, that's on them. I don't think that's the right approach because I don't think that helps anybody. Like what helps is to say like, 
I have knowledge you don't have. Let me help you do better. And they have so much a bigger platform than we ever could have. Like we could be the most famous, like doc, we could be Dr. Mike and we, we still are not Selena Gomez, right? And so we need to help educate them where to go, what to do and help them do better. And like someone like that is a powerful example of like even a young person asking the right questions and trying to be in the right rooms and really caring. And I'm going to, I could go on forever. That's like really like glowing, but I just think we always look at the negatives of celebrities and the negatives of self-disclosure and the negatives of media portrayals, but good ones, good ones do good. <laughs> and like even us educating around the bad ones can do good. So it doesn't help to pretend it doesn't exist. I feel very similarly about social media. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when we're, you know, a lot of what I've been doing too is trying to take down information, misinformation, disinformation. So, you know, a lot of people's almost first celebrity encounter with mental health was like Tom Cruise jumping on the couch, right? And again, he's, you know, Scientology, anti-psychiatry, that whole field, again, that's something that we weren't maybe exposed to a whole lot during training or in the world, but like it's out there too. And I think, again, there is this shift in society as a whole towards looking at celebrities, right? As much as we don't want to and, and we kind of try to deny it, it's reality. You know, these people have influence, they have importance, their voice does matter. And again, what you're saying is exactly if we're able to kind of get in there and provide education to that voice and good experience to that voice, it can make a huge role difference, you know, especially, you know, I work with kids and kids look up to these kids are these, you know, stars and celebrities and <laughs> they're kids themselves sometimes, um, you know, and, you know, I, I definitely always look at like my little kids and when they were watching uh, Ryan's toy review, you know, like little Ryan Kaji, who's like the most wealthiest YouTuber and he's nine years old, he has generational wealth. I was like, what is this kid going to be going through <laughs> at in his life and what's the impact going to be? And, but no, it's, it's really important to be on that good side, combat the misinformation, combat that good stuff and, or the bad stuff and provide again, a positive aspect of getting help because ultimately that's what we're trying to do, right? Is get people connected with who they need to and whatever the voice is, if it gets them to where it is, that's what we want. Yeah. I worry a lot about like, you know, sometimes on social, like when people do things wrong, like newspapers and stuff, and I like call it out, like I'm not trying to make the person who wrote that feel bad. Like I'm trying to make the person who wrote that realize there are rules and that their editor should have caught it or somebody should have caught it before it went live. Like there's multiple steps, just like for medicine. If I ordered the drug that sounded the same and it was the wrong drug, somebody, a pharmacist, a nurse, somebody would say, Dr. Gold, did you mean this? I might have meant it. And sometimes it's annoying to be asked if I meant it, but it also is a relevant, important check. And they don't seem to have that as much on these things, like at least the mental health related things. And and I think it's important and I don't want to call them out. I don't want to make them feel bad. I've definitely called out more kind of influencer, even like doctor level <laughs> influencer type people about the way that they said something. And I and I don't necessarily mean it as like they're wrong, they're bad. It's like even these people can get this wrong. So like how do we need to do better and how can we do better? And, you know, I think the same thing like 
I've, I've done sensitivity reads for young adult books and that's super fun too. Like, you know, they don't have a lot of mental health themes, but when they do, it's super fun. Like it, you read the book and you tell them like, I hated that character and all you did was make me hate the character with mental illness. Like, I don't know that that was your intent because I think they were just a complex character, but you have to be careful that like, I hate them. So like, am I hating them because of their mental illness or do I just hate them? And so like, you know, pointing these things out to them is fun. Like, I like doing that. Like, I've, I feel like I get to point out things they might not notice because I'm looking at it with a different eye. Um, and like all of these forms of media have different reach and different people, like a different person's reading like the New York Post than reading YA fiction, right? <laughs> so you have like the ability to sort of say like, these are the things that are going on and like, how can I make that better? And like, that's not all in academics. And I think we make a mistake thinking it is like, I'm still in academics, but like even a promotional level, like the stuff that I do is not valued the same as writing a JAMA paper, even though less people will read a JAMA paper than I've read any of my articles, like most of the time. <laughs> so it's like, you know, maybe you're that one JAMA paper that gets everywhere and like is the one that changes people's lives, right? But for the most part, I read a study that like on average, 10 people read a full scientific journal article, like 10. You put all that energy and money and time and whatever, and 10 people read it. Like on average, like 40,000 people read a piece I write for InStyle or Self, right? That's not a big magnitude of change. And we should value that equivalently. We just don't, but we should. Yeah, it's, it's the whole culture of academic medicine. Again, like similar to what you're saying, I know, there's all these research about like black mental health and suicidality and, uh, you know, athlete mental health. And, you know, just yesterday, John Wall, he was point guard for, I don't know who he's playing for right now, but he used to be a, a DC guy for a long time. I think he's in Houston or the Clippers or something right now. Um, but he's talking about his brush with suicidality after his mother's death and talking, you know, I think he said something He's like, the quote is like, I need some fucking help. And he went into therapy and he got the help and he was extolling the virtues of what that did for him, what it allowed for him. And I was like, this is going to do more for black athlete mental health, this article, this vulnerability than anything. Again, that's in JAMA or the APA or anything like that. Cause you know, we're, it's almost an echo chamber in those situations and they don't have that reach for our patients. Our patients aren't picking up articles of JAMA, our article, you know, they're not, reaching for that stuff at all. So it's really, really important. And, and I think, again, what you're saying, what you're doing in regards to helping to shape the narrative or clean up that narrative is, is super important. So, but. yeah, I also think like if you're a researcher and you put all that time and energy into stuff, you need to learn these other methods of communication because you want people to see it. Like my sister is a researcher. I taught her how to use Twitter. She uses it like a researcher. She's not using it the same as me, right? Like she's really using it to try to communicate her studies and what she's up to. And like, she's got a following of allergists and people interested in what she does. And that's fine. Like you don't need a platform like me or you, right? Like it's okay to still use it to elevate your work and like show people what you're doing and explain it in a way that doesn't come across in the journal or be the person like, uh, you know, I have friends that will publish a paper and at the same time publish an op-ed on it. Like that's what we should be doing. 
if you're doing the work to do the research and all the work to do the research, why should the New York Times get the ability to write about it? Like, shouldn't you get the chance? And like, if they don't want it, fine. And like, do some good interviews, right? But be aware that like, you can do that too. Like, you don't have to do these things like in isolation and we're all better for it. Like, I wish I could design a new psychopharm drug. Like, I don't, I hate that stuff. We need it because our meds suck most of the time. They take too long. They mostly don't work. We don't know who gets which one really. It's kind of like shooting darts. Like if we really knew that stuff, our ability to care for people would be substantially improved. I would not have to keep having conversations with people that are like, I'm sorry, this is going to take forever. Just sit around miserably. Oh, I'm sorry, you have side effects. Let's change it. Changing meds, you can sit around miserably, whatever, right? Like these things where I feel their pain because I can't fix them fast enough or I can't fix them well enough. Somebody else is going to figure that out. And I need those people. We all do, right? Like we benefit from all of those people, but those people deserve the right for their stuff to be heard and seen and stuff like sometimes new drugs come out and I'm like what where did that first of all why are you giving people cough syrup but second of all where did that come from and like how did I not even know this was like in a thought process and like maybe you should like communicate more of what you're working on like you've been doing a clinical trial for like how long like shouldn't I know that there's new drugs in development I don't know but there's just like a big chasm between like researchers and like the people who do what we do. And, and instead of going like actually mutual be mutually beneficial relationships, first of all, if you're a researcher who's shy and a bad communicator publicly, you need me because I'm happy to communicate it for you and learn it and be able to answer questions or help you shape your narrative if that's what you want, right? And at the same time, we need them. Like we can't change the field and help people without them. And it's so stupid to be like, I am cooler than you, so I will judge you for what you do and then not realize like how much power we would have if we could just say like these things need to go together. That's how we will get better and how we'll, we'll make this field better, not be like in a silo. Again, we have that, you know, that there's an aspect in psychiatry yeah. where we we have to admit, you know, and I think we have people have been open to admitting saying that like there is a lot of unknown and there is a lot of guesswork and a lot of kind of trying to figure stuff out and waiting the patience that's there and that comes with it. Um, so we do have to support each other. We can't just be in our little towers of isolation and, and talking about these things and doing whatever it may be. One of the things also pivoting a bit when we're, when we are online, when we are in the media, when we're on Twitter, when we're writing stuff, we're being self-disclosing and we're all this stuff, the haters come. The trolls come, the negative talk people come. How do you deal with that? How do we deal with the people? Because I think, you know, we know this when we work with our patients and our clients that like, and they have these negative selective biases of, again, we could see a hundred positive reactions and one person says something negative and that's all we think of, right? And again, we can go through all our cognitive training of saying that's, you know, hundred to one, blah, blah, blah. How do we deal with it as our platform gets bigger and then those voices get bigger and bigger? So I'm going to say this with a caveat, which is I am white. Um, I am a white female, so I get some of the female stuff, but I am a white woman and I have a privilege of not getting as much hate as my friends who are not white. And 
the stuff that they get in their inbox and their responses is disgusting and hurtful. And I, if I could take away that from them, I would. But I think as a caveat, whatever I get pales in comparison to what they get. That being said, you know, I, I tend to talk about pretty neutral subjects. So I tend to not be a big, big target of a lot of this. I would say the thing I most get stuff for is gun violence. So I tend to really get after like Twitter people or um, news articles who immediately do the mental illness thing when people with mental illness are much less likely or much more likely to be the victims than the perpetrators, you know? And so it just makes me mad because it's like so stigmatizing, first of all, but just like such a lazy answer, to be honest. Um, and and one that's not going to lead to change because it's the wrong change. And if you want to change something, you want to change mental health because of it, give me all the monies. Um, but at the same time, when I talk about mental health and gun violence, I then land in the sphere that like, again, pales into comparison with someone like Shannon Watts gets every day. But um you know, people send emails that are quite threatening and involve weapons and they're made up names and made up IP addresses and nobody can trace it. I can't protect myself. Um, and some of that's scary. And I think some of that we're seeing at the level of the hospitals who do gender affirming care. And that's scary. My friends, like my friends who are abortion providers, they do not need, like the fact that they move somewhere new and have to tell their neighbors if they see someone uh, someone's suspicious to tell them because maybe their house is going to get blown up blows my mind. The fact that my friends who do gender affirming care have to, um, have security guards to go to work now is not okay, right? Like that's a whole level of like harassment or something that we should not have to just say is okay and something we deal with. That is something someone else should be fixing and protecting us from because we're just doing our jobs and that's not okay, right? So that level is like something that needs to be taken care of at a level that is so beyond my control, law enforcement, I don't know, but that part, I don't think is something we could just tell people It's like suck it up and deal with it. Like, that's not OK. But the part where it's like someone says something like, what do you know? Like I like guns or whatever. And like, you know, when I talked about being on meds, people asked if I was addicted to them because I'd been on them for like 10 years or whatever. And like that sort of thing that feels like in the moment hurtful or feels in the moment like just like annoying in the sea of really positive things, those are the things that we can kind of change our mindsets around, I think, to the best of our ability, which is like, for the most part, that's about the person, not you. It's very hard in the moment to think like that because it requires some higher level of like psychobabble um, to be able to be like, no, there's some there's something else there. Like for physician wellness, if somebody yells at me for the stuff I'm saying, it's because they don't take care of their own mental health. Um, and they're telling me it's like dangerous or whatever. It's because it's all projection. So to be able for me to go like, hold on, 
Like my reaction might make sense in this situation because of how I feel they're, you know, me, you know, coming at me. But what is it about for them? And then sometimes I reply, like I'll try a once and a never again kind of thing. If the person is saying something that feels like it has movement, if not, like mute is your friend because no one will then retweet you and say you blocked them, right? Like anything you can do, like muting words, muting whatever feels protective of you, posting something with like limited ability to reply. Yes, people get annoyed that you turned off your replies, but that's your life. Like you do what you need to do to protect you. And if you want to talk about stuff that you know people are going to get cranky and angry and hurt you about, like you have the right to turn off your replies. Like you can control the things that you can control on social media. You can control your time on social media as well, as best as you can. Like I understand for those of us where it's related to our career or those of us who are in some career that intersects with the world, like advocacy, it's very hard not to stay informed. Like I don't feel like I am doing my patients justice if I'm like in a bubble and then go to work every day. Like it's impossible because all of their stress and everything is directly related to what's going on in the world. And if I'm not paying attention to the world, I'm not paying attention to them. But in the same respect, there used to be 24 hour, they didn't used to have 24 hour news cycles. So if we want news one hour a day, we, we might be fine. And then if we just turned in for breaking news, you know, like that's what they used to do. It's okay to take breaks. It's okay to take time away. It's okay to get news in some digest that feels fine to you, like the skim or, you know, something that just reads the news for you. And then you don't have to go on Twitter. You don't have to go on Instagram, whatever. Um, you know, I think we have the ability to control that. We don't feel like we can. I also think we have the ability to control our own reactions. Like, I grind my teeth when the news is making me mad. I for sure take some of that stuff personally. And I have to be like, hold on. Like, why are you grinding your teeth right now? Or what's going on with you right now? And like, should you get off social because of that? Or should you take a break because of that? Or do you just need to reframe whatever the heck is going on in your head? And sometimes all of those are true. But we just need to be aware that social media can do that to us or people's comments can do that to us. Instead of saying like social media is like the devil or social media is all good, is nothing is ever that. Uh, I'm a big dialectics person, but at the same time, like it's just impossible. Like yes, the self-esteem problems of Instagram, but there's also like funny memes and like motivation. So like it's both good and bad, right? And so being able to say like, Today is a bad day for me in social. I need a break. Or turns out social media ruins my sleep. Whatever it is, like having the awareness to take control of that and admit that's a thing, I think is something all of us can do. Yeah, it's it's huge because there is that aspect. Again, you know, when I'm working with teens and you're working with college students, and you know, primarily we think of social media as this younger person's world, but it's not. And we know the impact that it is that it has on everybody you know and especially on the younger developing minds like it can have that huge huge impact and being able to kind of turn it off and, and exactly what you're saying of saying i know to turn it off i know i need to take that break can be a, a massive thing and, and filtering that out because you know again when i talk about social media and i get groped in these kind of conversations you have a lot of people are like oh it's it's evil you know tiktok is terrible and instagram is terrible but it's like it can be, <laughs> it absolutely can be, but there's also great stuff. There's people like ourselves, people that are the professionals that are hopefully putting out, you know, good stuff, good positive stuff that you can learn from. And I think, you know, 
I had to fix the fridge recently uh, at our home and like you go to YouTube and that's on social media. And I was able to like, you see, there's a good handyman who, who saved me hundreds of dollars by being able to put a tutorial of how to fix the fridge on there. And that's from social media, right? That's a great use of it. And again, there's all the negatives that come with it too. But again, being able to filter those things out is part of the process. And I've made real friends. Like, I also think that's important to people because people criticize social media as being this like virtual sphere where you're not actually getting real support from things like loneliness. Yes, you are, especially over the pandemic. Like everyone took away my friends. Like I'm an extrovert. They took away all my friends. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't even see patients in person. I'm stuck behind a computer. The only friends I really had to see regularly were like people I talked to over DM or people I talked to in comments on Twitter, people that like we then transitioned to sort of like talking on the video, like talking on the phone. I just did a conference, like a women in medicine summit with my friend, Jamie Coleman, who is a trauma surgeon. And like, people were like, oh my gosh, you guys are like really close. Like the way that we were interacting. And I was like, we've met twice. And the first time was for 10 minutes in between her call shifts because I happen to be in Denver. Like we are not human friends. Like we are friends from a virtual space. And that made a very real friendship that like, we can rely on each other. And I think that can't be discounted in the sea of horribleness that is social media, like the misinformation, the trolls, the like harassment, that's there. But at the same time, like when I start posting things that sound like I'm sad or tired, I get DMs asking if I'm okay. And they might be from random people that I didn't even know I was influencing. And they're just like, hey, Jesse, I noticed like you know, I hope you don't mind me asking, but like, I noticed the tone of your stuff has been really tired or cranky or something lately. Like, or I just wanted to make sure someone was checking on you too. And like, that stuff means a lot to me. Like, I don't know that I say that because I also am kind of taken aback that I sounded so negative because I'm not good at observing myself. But, you know, it means a lot. And those people are like, a lot of them are real friends to me. And I don't think that that's some weird warped version of stuff. Like, I've never met you. Like, I, you know, I think you can build real connections with people because you're like, they have the same sense of humor. They care about the same stuff as me. If we were in the same place, I bet we'd be friends. And I think that's fine. Like the world is a big world. And sometimes I will be in the same place as you and we can meet up or we can organize those things, right? Like anytime I'm going to a conference, I bet I know someone from social there that I can meet in person. And a lot of us do that. But I don't know. I think that needs to not be so discounted, especially for people with things like social anxiety, like those are real friendships. Yeah. And I, I see this a lot with, again, my, my teen patients and we know we're doing the, you know, the intakes with the parents and they're like, they're on their phone all the time and they have the fake friends and they're playing on. And I'm like, no, those, those friendships are, are real. Like the, the relationships that are there can absolutely be real. And, you know, we transition to that and, you know, we see these videos online of people of guys who are gaming, gaming buddies for like, you know, 10 years and they finally get together. And it's like, it's like they're, you know, they're crying in each other's arms because it's the first time they're meeting each other. It's like, those are real relationships. Those are real people on the other end. And very similar to kind of what you're describing, like, again, during pandemic, like I still went into the office every day, but there were two other people in the office with me. You know, it was me, one therapist and our front desk person. And that's how we got by for however many months. And like, if I didn't have that aspect of again Twitter and connecting and making these relationships on other people with other people, when I go on TikTok Live and I do these on like you know every Wednesday night, like you know the same group of people kind of pop in there, and it's like those are 
relationships. There's people, even though I mean, again, may not have like met them, met them all of them in real life, but like those are relationships. We care about each other. So I know last things kind of, I want to talk about, I know (laughs) a lot of the things that we've, you've talked about is talked about burnout and this kind of is a little segue in there, but you talking about burnout and burnout of, we were talking about a little bit before, but the burnout of talking about burnout, how do you deal with that? Or what's, what's that like? We don't have to jump into the whole, I think we've all yeah. turned about burnout, but that aspect of like, oh, this is what I have to talk about this again. <laughs> it's interesting because like, <laughs> you don't get to necessarily choose the things that you become the advocate for or the things that are, are you're now the expert in. Like, I'd love to say it makes a lot of sense, but I just started talking and understood it and had experience and have kind of grown to being a person who talks about this stuff because I care about faculty, staff and healthcare workers. Right. And over the pandemic started giving like, you know, talks to get people into resources and, and, and was running around campus. And I swear, like in a two month span gave like six, like 40, 50 outreach conversations. They're short, like five, 10 minutes sometimes, but like, it's not without energy to talk about that stuff and talk about the data and realize that the data is horrible or whatever. Right. So it's, it's exhausting. And like at one point, and this has happened actually a couple of times, like I was interviewed a couple of times as an expert and mentioned my own state of being and ended up as the lead in the article or one of the central characters in the article. Um, And I don't know that that was the intent, right? But because I was like, just being real, I was like, oh yeah, sure, Bloomberg, I guess you can feature me. Or like, oh yeah, sure, New York Times. Like, I guess I'm a front, like a lead for a story because I'm the burned out burnout expert, right? And some of that's from what we do every day because what we do every day is really hard. And we also discount how hard it is because we're holding emotions. We're not in the front line. We're not on our feet all day, whatever we want to say, there are lots of ways you can minimize the work we do and it's relation to the pandemic, but it's heavy and we need to acknowledge that. So of course our work contributes to it, but running around talking about this stuff adds to it because it's not like I'm talking about sunshine and rainbows. And even if I was, I probably would hate that after a while too, but there's sort of what my therapist calls is like meta burnout, meaning I'm burned out by burnout. I'm burned out about talking about burnout. And she actually brought it up in the setting of like me talking about burnout to her because I'd been burnt out for so long, but also talking about burnout. Um, And I think it's true. It's like very hard to not have that stuff affect you and not somehow magically end up the lead like the first time that happened I was like oh no my I I did something wrong like my my university is gonna be mad at me because I like told the truth about how I was and I don't want them to think this is like about where I work it's just about life and what I do and it would be the same anywhere probably different stressors whatever but same anywhere and like oh no I screwed up and then I was like if this is the lead, we have a problem and maybe I can help change it by being like a representative of imperfection as an expert, right? Like I'm not good at everything that I say that people should do. I don't recognize burnout in myself, even though I know every sign and symptom. I don't take care of myself always until it's really late. And I wish other, I would be more preventative too. And, and, you know, if I have to be the person saying that I'm okay saying that, and I, and I get good feedback, which can help with the burnout too, but 
you know, it's been an, a realization that like, it's okay that I struggle with it too. But like, at the same time, like, I actually need to, when I say yes to something, be like, do I have the emotional capacity for that something? So when I do boundaries, it's not just like things, because things are one thing, like, do you have time for that thing? What would adding that thing do to your schedule? Like, how beneficial is that thing to someone else or to you, right? And then there's like, but also, can you do it, <laughs> right? Which is like this new step that I added in the pandemic, which was like, I never had this many requests for me in my life um, because I started doing more media because I happened to be good at speaking about this tiny topic that they needed people to speak about. Um, and a lot of the things they were asking for were things I would have always said yes to grand round somewhere or like going on to like a TV show I've never been on, whatever, right? These things where I would be like, cool, like someone wants me to do that. And then enough of these things that were like, you know, things I'd be excited by, things I would like started coming my way that I was like, uh oh, I need something else to decide this because I've said yes to way too much and this isn't good for me. So how can I do this? And part of that was like work in therapy. But I think some of what we figured out is that I need to be like, do I have the emotional capacity to have that conversation? Because this is not without emotional impact. This is not without additional contribution to my burnout. And sometimes I now have to say no or say like any chance you can do that in April right? You know, it's September. Like, that's embarrassing. Like, I'm not that cool. Like, I'm not so, so booked up that I'm really booking out into April. It's that I know I just can't. And I think it's important because I won't be as good or I'll be fine. No one will notice and I won't feel as good, right? And so, you know, really taking into account that like the things that we do, even if they're fun, even if they're helping people, even if they're the thing we get the most joy and sort of like pick me up from, can still have an impact on our mental health and we need to include that. It's been a big like working revelation for me and continues to be and it's super hard because turning down things where you can help a lot of people or or as we are in a field that cares a lot about helping our own self move forward, helping our own self move forward, that's hard. Like that is not something that feels good, um, especially if the person comes to me through someone I know. Um, but it's something I'm working on. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. really, I think you nailed it on the head when you said that, you know, when we're trying to push our agenda almost or push what we're promoting, push what we're doing, we're passionate about it. We, we can't do everything, right? We, we ha there are limits to how much we can do and being able to say no, setting those boundaries for others, for ourselves is very, very important. It is the scaffolding that's there um, to keep us, keep us in the best state of mind. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough ask, right? Because again, when you become, when you're trying to again, become bigger in whatever it is that you're doing, trying to make those connections, this comes with it. Right. And, and when we're pulled, it's, it becomes very hard. So, well, I want to thank you for being able to share your time with me. I know it was very happy to. Yeah, I think I think this was cool. Hopefully, our technology didn't totally break during the middle of this. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, if if it's like somebody gets some things that I said and mostly not, we'll we'll know later and we'll, we'll talk another out. time. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But um, thank you, thank you so much for your time. Any other things? Any parting 
you know, I'm not good at being super profound in the moment, but I would just say like, recognize that you're a human in whatever you do. So you're allowed to be affected by everything that you do and everything that you're working on. And there's no, this person deserves it more, or I didn't suffer from that. So I can't like, that's not helping you. What is helping you is just really actually recognizing you have real and valid emotions and you're a human being and whatever you have to do to deal with that is okay. And like totally ask for help if you need it. I go to therapy every week. I find it super beneficial still. My therapist canceled today and I'm not in like struggling. I'm okay. Right. But I was like, oh, I really like having the hour to like concentrate on myself and like make myself concentrate on myself. And it's important. And we're just not taught to feel like it's okay to ask for help in lots of cultures and lots of places of work and lots of, you know, ways that we've been raised, but it helps. And my therapist, my closest relationship over COVID. So I think it's important to go that way. And, you know, I hope that people feel like that's changing. Yeah. And it was one of those things my dad always says to me is like, it's okay to be selfish sometimes. And I think it's really important, especially in the helping professions to be selfish, to take care of yourself so that, you know, it's the old, old adage we use, right? When the airplane oxygen tanks or the masks come down, it's you put it on yourself first and foremost. So cool. Well, thank you, Dr. Gold. Thank you for your time. And uh, got it. we'll talk again. Yeah, I hope so.